Well, how good is it to be able to get into God's Word together? And uh, how good is it that God's Word never returns to Him empty? It's always powerful and doing its work. And we've just seen that in our reading today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word and we pray you'll do this kind of work in us. Please make us glad for your Word, hungry for your Word and hungry to share it with those around us so they might come to life as well. Amen. Now, we've been seeing that very dramatically, how powerful God's word is over the last few weeks as we've uh, looked at how God has taken some of the most evil and depraved people this world has ever seen and made them entirely new creations uh, who hunger for God and long for everyone else to know the same God that they've come to serve. Nebuchadnezzar, the mad despot, right, who ran the world in his time, Manasseh. Uh, Naaman last week and and we've seen some of the extraordinary lengths and means that God will use to humble people and bring the hardened to himself madness imprisonment uh, serious illness uh, being cut off from the people he, he brought them all to their knees and then he brought them to himself well today's great conversion might seem a bit tame in comparison to the last three weeks as God uses a simple conversation between uh, these two gentlemen to bring one guy who's on his way home from holidays to new life with Jesus. Uh, There's no fall from grace, there's no blood on the floor, just one man sharing with another man God's word and God does his work. And it's such a great reminder that not every testimony has to be dramatic to be wonderful and powerful, that God's got bigger plans than we do and that he can use ordinary believers to sharing their faith to do extraordinary things in the lives of other people. Uh, Who's the man who has the great conversion? Well, we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 8 and verse 27. There was an Ethiopian man a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Now, that's just a couple of lines of introduction to this guy, but it's actually jam-packed telling us all sorts of things about him, where he's from, what he does, and why he's right here at this very moment that's a defining moment where God's going to change his whole life. Uh, Where's he from? Well, he's from Ethiopia uh, in the northeast of Africa, which in those days was bigger than now. It covered uh, the whole area of the Sudan. It's what the Old Testament refers to as Cush. Um, uh, we, we only know that area of the world ourselves, Ethiopia and Sudan, uh, from the news stories of the last oh, 50 years of the grinding famines and the, the poverty and the civil wars and the hatred that's up there. But it, it was a thriving empire in its day. Uh, and uh, being from there doesn't just, well, he's not just kind of giving his details for no reason. It's important because it signals that he's an outsider to God's people. Uh, Up until now, uh, God's people have all been from the nation of Israel. This is the first guy who's going to come to faith in Christ and become one of God's people from 
outside of Israel. There's been a couple of notable exceptions in the Old Testament, uh, but very few, and they married in. Rahab, Ruth, people like that. Uh, but this man's not going to be marrying in to Israel because we're also told he's a eunuch, uh, that he's been castrated, um, which... Uh, uncomfortable procedure uh, it may have been in order to get the job that he's got or it might be the qualification that he had in order to get the job that he's got because what did he do for a living he worked for the queen of the Ethiopians Candace now being a eunuch might seem like a very strange work requirement uh, and it would probably stop most of us from wanting to apply for the job but it was actually pretty common practice uh, if you're working for royalty or working around the king's harem or working around the queen for, for this to be the normal requirement. Uh, and um, it, it removed any question of temptation or of impropriety. And if you've got power, you can wield it any way you want. Uh, what work did this man do for Queen Candidus? Um, well, he was one of her high officials, in fact, so high-ranking and powerful He's in charge of the treasury. That is, he is the treasurer of the nation of Ethiopia. He's a big deal. But the cost of that power and responsibility was his manhood. But that also presented for him an even greater problem, deeper problem when it came to God than just being a foreigner, an outsider. Because in the law of Israel, in Deuteronomy 23... We read this, no man whose testicles have been crushed or whose penis has been cut off may enter the Lord's assembly. Now that may be a very obscure part of the law that you have never read before or remember reading or you blocked it out of your mind when you did read it. But it's there in God's Old Testament law that you cannot be like this man, a eunuch, and be welcome as one of God's people in his presence. It's not the only condition that means a person's outside of being part of the worship of God, but to be damaged in this way, put you outside and put you outside permanently. But that just makes the next thing we read about him, I think, all the more intriguing because we're also told he'd come to Jerusalem for a particular reason. He'd come to worship Israel's God, the God who said he's not welcome. <laughs> And now he's on his way home. So even though he's got no place in the family of God, he's an outsider who's a eunuch, he he's, he's knows enough about God to be convinced that God is real and that this God is the one to be worshipped. No idea how he came to that conclusion, whether it was he had a Jewish mate at school growing up uh, or whether you know there was kind of the empires and movement and stuff. Maybe it was his trade relations. He'd heard about this God, but he wanted to know him and worship him. And he spared no expense to know this God better. And he's not only paid for a luxury trip, which you know you didn't go on holidays like this uh, in the ancient world, right? You you just worked. And uh, but he's paid to go there. But while he was in Jerusalem, he'd managed to purchase his own personal copy of one of the scrolls of Israel's scriptures, the scroll of Isaiah, which means he's a man of considerable means. It's not like popping down to Kurong and buying a Bible. right? This is a small fortune he has spent 
to have a man copy the whole thing out by hand onto a parchment. Right? This is, he's a wealthy man who really wants to know his God. And it's not just he bought as a collector's item to be put in the, the cabinet at home you know, with the, uh, the bobbleheads and the, the DVD collection. Right? No, he's reading it. And he's reading it out loud, as was the custom, while he's on his trip home. And so you imagine the scene in today's terms. Here is a high-ranking African official on his way back to Kirribilli in his ministerial limousine. And he's taken the time to put down his laptop and his official business papers to puzzle over this religious text that he has spent a small fortune acquiring, but which, as we find out, he doesn't get. He doesn't understand it, at least not fully. But there was someone else on that desert road that day, the man who would go down in history by the name Philip the Evangelist. But he's not introduced that way. Uh, And I suspect if you met Philip in his day, you would probably guess he was an accountant. Uh, uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, uh, introduced us to Philip back in chapter 6. He's not a church leader, he's not a preacher, he's not, uh, you know, inspired by God in some way or set apart for the task of preaching. Uh, He was hired as a time and motion expert uh, for the early church. Uh, to sort out rosters and organise food distribution for the, because the church had gone from very small beginnings to the fastest growing megachurch in the world at the time. Uh, and growth always brings challenges and with the increasing numbers of people becoming Christians and coming to church, it was giving the apostles leading the church huge headaches because they knew their job was preaching the word and praying for the people but they'd found themselves bogged down in admin and sorting out Uh, the disputes amongst the members and so they were doing that all their time and so they're no longer people coming to Christ because they're too busy sorting out the problems of the church. It sounds like being a rector really. (laughs) So the apostles got, what are we going to do about this situation? We're not doing the work we're supposed to be doing. And so they hire seven men who are godly, who have a good reputation but who are full of administrative wisdom right Christians better equipped better gifted to serve the church in this particular way and Philip was one of them right so he's the coordinator type he's good with spreadsheets and numbers but a great persecution had broken out in Jerusalem and another one of the seven admin guys Stephen had been murdered as part of it And that happened in chapter 7 and more was coming. And so chapter 8 and verse 1, you might want to flip back, or it's on the screen as well. On that day that Stephen was murdered, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Right, they were running, they were refugees. But scared as they were running for dear life, something amazing happens in verse 4. But those who were scattered, so everyone but the apostles, went on their way preaching the word. And so you've got this situation where the apostles, who are the real evangelists, if you want to call them that, are back in Jerusalem at home base. They're they're sticking to their guns. But the rest of the church are scattered abroad as refugees. 
But despite that, the early Christians weren't particularly gifted evangelists. They couldn't help but speak about the Lord and Saviour they had come to know and serve. They were hungry for God's heart. They were fearless. They wanted people who were lost, people who were even hating them and hunting them down to know Jesus. Now Philip's one of them. And when he fled, he went north from Jerusalem towards Samaria. Judea's in the south, Samaria's above that, Galilee's above that. You might know those areas from the Gospels. And, and he thought, well, I'm the only Christian up here that anyone in Samaria knows, and so I guess it's up to me. And so he got to work. And so chapter 8 and verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. It says down, but it's up north. Uh, it's like going down to Queensland. We always go down there, don't we? Uh, and uh, he proclaimed the Messiah to them, and increasingly many people came to Christ through him, so that by verse 8, there was a great joy in that city. Amazing thing through this very ordinary admin guy. Whole cities turned to Christ. But God had another job for Philip to do. He'd fled north to Samaria at the top from Jerusalem in the middle. Um, but God's got a special job for him down south. And God's going to put Philip in exactly the right place at the right time to encounter this Ethiopian eunuch on his way home and lead him to Christ. And it really is God's hand at work. I think we can't help but see that throughout this whole story. I mean, who brought Philip down the desert road heading south to Gaza? God did. Right? An angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go south to the desert road. Who told Philip to go up to that particular chariot? God did. The Spirit said to Philip, go to that chariot over there. Who arranged what appears to be a remarkable coincidence that at the very moment that Philip approaches the chariot, the treasure of Ethiopia should be reading out loud from Isaiah 53, the key passage in Isaiah. God did. And who is it that so worked in the heart of the Ethiopian that he should be wanting to hear the good news of the gospel at the very moment that some bozo comes jogging alongside his chariot? God did. Who's in charge? God's in charge. God is as Philip, led by the Holy Spirit, finds himself in the right place at the right time, at the right point in this mighty man's life. He's in his ministerial limo on his way to Kirribilli. He's possibly, we're not told this, spent the whole morning going over the financials and planning how to explain the current inflation level and interest rate rises. Uh, maybe he's putting together uh, next year's budget for Queen Candace for her speech. But right now, at this moment, he's put all those thoughts on hold and his mind has turned to something that's been troubling him since he's left Jerusalem. Who is Isaiah talking about? It's an important question because he's just got to the bit where God explains how it is that people's sins can be forgiven and how they can come to be at peace with God. 
which Isaiah says will all happen through one particular person that God's going to send. And he's thinking, who is it? I want peace with God. I want my sins forgiven. Who is it? And it's at that very moment that Philip approaches the chapter. Now, Philip's got no idea about that. But it's that moment that Philip comes alongside him. Is it not remarkable? Are we not meant to conclude that God is in control of the unstoppable events of the good news? On the big scale, he has promised it. On the small scale, he's organised it and he's absolutely committed to it. It's all God's arrangement. It's not by accident. God makes it all happen. God causes the hungry heart in the Ethiopian treasurer. God gives Philip a hunger for the lost. God arranges Philip here at the right time in just the right place, somewhere that Philip had never planned to be. God is committed. It is his work and you'll never be able to stop it. Now, I became a Christian in uh, 1990 on the 17th of March at the Sutherland Entertainment Centre. Uh, I don't know if you know the Sutherland Entertainment Centre. It's not the world's biggest entertainment centre. Not a lot of entertaining happens there much. But anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> I happen to know because uh, the complete stranger who shared a Bible verse with me there gave me a tract and I signed the date and the location and my name to the back to say I'd become a Christian that night. Uh, I was there because... Uh, I started going to youth group because they had played fun games and they had girls. So that was good. Uh, <laughs> I had zero interest in becoming a Christian. But God had arranged it all for that moment. And if you've come to Christ through a particular person, a particular camp, a particular group, a particular time, God's behind it. Thank God that he knows what he's doing. And it also means you never know whether your next conversation with someone about Jesus is going to mean that's the moment for them, that they will give their life to Jesus. But though God's in charge and organised this encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian on the desert road, um, God was going to do a great work. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Philip didn't have anything to do you see, God does his work through his people. Now, we've seen that every week. So far, we haven't highlighted, but the servant girl last week with Naaman, come meet my God, he'll, he'll fix your problems. Right? The, the unnamed prophets who Manasseh had murdered after he'd spoken to them about how this isn't on. Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar, bold enough to say, actually, God, God's in charge. And even though it was a, you know, God works through his people. And that's the second thing I want to see. God, God brought him to the right place. He's jogging alongside the chariot, but he still had to figure out what to do and say in that moment. It's not like it was going to be this instantaneous, God's just going to speak. Yeah, some people say, just let go and let God. And Well, Philip's thought about this ahead of time. Just picture being Philip here for a moment. God sent you down this road with no explanation. Right? He said... That chariot there, that's all the information you've got to go on. 
right? It's not stopping for you. It's trucking down the road and so you've got to run to keep up with it. And you know God's got you there for a reason, but what's going through your mind? Why am I here? <laughs> what's God want me to do? Should I just knock on the door? Uh, I wish I'd done some more cardio workouts. <laughs> All sorts of thoughts. But you pull up alongside and over the sound of your own panting for breath, you hear some familiar words being read out from the Bible from the prophet Isaiah. Huh. Well, whatever other doubts or fears or thoughts Philip was having before he arrived suddenly vanish and he knows this is the moment and he goes for it with a question which I think is a good one that any one of us could use if we saw someone reading a Bible on a train station or next to us. Um, See it in verse 30. Do you understand what you're reading? Such a simple question and so appropriate to what's happening. And I, I reckon there's something to learn from Philip here. All right, he's taken note of his circumstances, of, of something remarkable, and he's thought to remark on it. It's as if he had taken lessons from our good friend Bob Brown in the States, who's probably listening in right now, he tunes in for 8 o'clock church here every morning from California, uh, but he, he's been out here and visited church a number of times. One of Bob's great phrases is, always remark on the remarkable. Hi, Bob. Uh, learn to notice what's happening around you, small details, big things, and say, huh, look at that. Right? It'll help you be thankful to God, It'll help you be, have, have really great relationships and be an interesting person to re- connect with. But it'll help you to work out also why God's got you where you are right now and it will certainly help you get into amazing gospel conversations like this one, which is exactly what happens. Do you understand what you're reading? Well, it's probably more, do you understand what you're reading? Right? How can I, the man says, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come into the ministerial limousine and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth? The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that very scripture. Now, we're not told how long the conversation lasted, but we're told it was just what this guy needed to hear and that he became a Christian that day. As a result, this was the moment that he found forgiveness for his sins and he found peace with God. He found he was welcome. He found that God was good for his word and that even a Gentile foreigner, even a eunuch could be accepted. And all because of the answer to his question about the one the passage he was reading in the Bible was talking about. 
He had no, no idea who it was. That was his question. But the answer he needed was Jesus. Jesus, who is not just the solution to the intellectual questions about the passage that he's reading. He's not just the answer to a puzzle, but Jesus is the answer to every one of life's big questions. Jesus, who has the answer to all life's questions for everybody. The one the passage in Isaiah is all about. Now, let, let me show it to you from the passage that, I, uh, that the man was reading in Isaiah. I, Isaiah was writing about... 700 years before Jesus in a time of national crisis. Uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed, all, sorry, all but destroyed, had been besieged by the Assyrian army uh, and this, the Assyrians are now gone but the Babylonians were going to come in not long and finish the job led by King Nebuchadnezzar of all people who we were looking at a few weeks ago who'd come to faith in Christ in the end. Babylon would be sent by God to destroy the people because of the sins of Manasseh, who we looked at two weeks ago, who also came to believe. And for 39 chapters, Isaiah's message to his people has been, woe, 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 I have rejected this people, says your God. You are gone. But then Isaiah 40 comes along and it's a sudden change of time. In fact, you know, if you don't believe that God helped write the scriptures, well, you come up with all sorts of weird theories about somehow some different dude must have written the second half of the scroll uh, because it just seems so different because it starts, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort, my, all this woe, and now comfort, comfort, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, announce to her that her time of hard service is over because her iniquity has been pardoned. Right? And as it goes on, it uh, talks about how that is going to happen. How is it this pardon is going to come? How is it that God is going to do this? Well, through someone who he calls his servant. His servant is going to come and his servant is going to be the solution to all the conundrums that not just Israel but the whole world faces. How this servant will deal kindly with the battered and bruised in 42. How he'll uh, bring uh, justice. How he'll sort out Israel's deepest problems and bring them back from being destroyed by Babylon. How he'll also be a light to the nations of the world. And he'll be a catalyst for all the Gentiles to come and receive God's grace. And so, for example, his uh, chapter 49, which the eunuch has just read past, right, uh, just a few moments before, is it not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob, that is Israel, and restoring the protected ones of Israel? I'll also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Or in Isaiah 56, which, you know, if he'd read on past, where he got to, uh, he read this a moment later, no foreigner who has uh, joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And get this, the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. I will give them, even the eunuchs in my house and within my walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. 
I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. How good is it that that's what this guy's reading at that moment? And the key which enables all of that to happen, the moment uh, at which the servant will enable that to happen is what Isaiah 53, the passage that eunuch is reading is about because this servant who god is going to send to do all that is going to be beaten whipped mocked scorned rejected and finally he'll be killed not for his own sins but for the sins of everyone else that's how god's going to do this He's going to come, this servant, as a great substitute to take upon himself the wrath of God, all the hatred of a holy God at human evil, all that makes us unworthy and unacceptable. And he'll do it for us so that we might not have to, because we can't deal with it, if we'll cast ourselves on him. And so here's the three verses the eunuch had just read before the bit we just heard. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, this servant, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But get this, he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all like sheep went astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The Ethiopian's question, who's that talking about? I, I need to know this one. Because he's going to pay for my sins? He's going to bring me peace with God? Has he come yet? Was it Isaiah? Are we still waiting? Philip knows the answer because he's received the grace and forgiveness himself. Jesus is the one. And having discovered the answer, the eunuch doesn't have to wait to be asked to come follow Jesus. He's just all in. What's to stop me getting baptised right now that I've understood and come to believe in this Jesus. There's nothing. And so they stop by the side of the road. The eunuch gets baptised in a puddle on the side of the street uh, as a symbolic act of commitment, knowing that his sins have been washed away by someone else, the servant of God, Jesus. That's amazing. Well, I want to draw some big lessons from this great conversion. First lesson. I think we've got to get this through our heads. The being... A worshipper of God is not the same as being saved by God or having a relationship with God. This powerful, rich African dignitary was in Jerusalem to worship God, but he did not know God. And he was not part of the family of God, and he wasn't in the kingdom of God until he received Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. Lots of people will say to us things like, I believe, I go to church, I went to Sunday school. 
uh, or we make assumptions about someone because they grew up in a Christian family or they, they arrived at church years before I was here, at least I think I did, but I just saw them sitting in the pew the first day I came and said, hey, must be a Christian. Um, uh, here is a guy reading his Bible on a trip back from a pilgrimage, a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God, who's got no idea how his sins could be forgiven or how he could be accepted by God. He needed someone to explain the gospel to him. As John Chapman, I don't know if you remember John Chapman, some of you will, great preacher and evangelist used to say, and he taught us at uh, Moore College, he said, always give people the charitable assumption. Assume that they're not yet Christians and they need to hear the gospel. <laughs> Just assume it. This person needs the gospel and I'm God's vessel to tell them. <laughs> Second lesson, not everyone is ready to fight God and going to go down kicking and screaming like the other guys that we've seen. I mean, God brought them to himself, but not everyone is going to yell at you and fight and cut your head off. And, right? God's prepared them already and they're ripe for harvest. We've got no idea who they are, but they're there and it's delightful. In fact, Dave was just showing me some McCrindle research before the service that 64% of Australians say that they would accept an invitation from a Christian to watch church online with them. 67% would accept an invitation to come to physical church with them. Right? More people are willing to come to physical church and two-thirds of the country, if we just invited them, they'd be here. Well, one day at least. That's not saying they become Christians. But like, there is a massive openness to thinking about this stuff. Right? The night I came to Christ, it was totally unexpected. A woman walks into church one day to prove her boss wrong and walks out having the gift of eternal life. Right? A guy from mainland China who's never heard of Jesus is sitting on the lawn at uni where he's studying when two guys come up and ask him if they can practice explaining Christianity on him. He's like, what's that? They're gobsmacked when he says at the end, I think I need this Jesus and he's still walking with Christ today. <laughs> right? The next time you open your mouth to talk about Jesus might be the moment. You don't know what God's done in their life beforehand, who's been praying, what's happened, but this could be the moment. So stay hungry for God's heart. Third lesson, God's word is powerful. Right? God doesn't waste his words. Third, fourth lesson, Sometimes God will use us despite our human planning. Philip's on the run from persecution. He thought he'd go north. Had a great ministry up there. Turned from an accountant into an evangelist. Uh -huh. And uh, on this particular day, God's got him down on the road south where he'd never thought to go, on the desert road to Gaza. And did you notice at the end, in the end, where does he end up? Back up north. Uh, uh, the... I'm not saying we should expect the Holy Spirit to prompt and lead like this necessarily, that an angel is going to come and make it clear who to talk to or not, but God will put us in odd situations and we can learn to make the most of them. And so that's my last lesson, number five, 
how do you make the most of these weird opportunities? Some things to learn from Philip. One, be ready to go. If you're not ready to go, you'll never take the opportunities. Right? Two, be a good observer. Do a bob. Learn to remark on the remarkable. Right? And, and that's how you create amazing gospel opportunities like this. What's that cross that you're wearing around you? Is that, is that just jewellery from someone or is that a religious thing? What's that tattoo about? What's, just make some observations. And third one, ask questions. That's how Philip gets it. It's polite, it's non-threatening, and it's a really simple and disarming way of remarking on the remarkable. What's that? Tell me about it. Fourthly, share the scriptures. The word of God is powerful and effective and God saves people as they hear it, right? For me, Romans 6.23, that's what the man shared with me. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? I said, that's wrong. He explained why it's right. I went, oh, you're right. I better become a Christian. Right? <laughs> it took it long, longer than that. But, you know. um, so lastly, fifth, point to Jesus. He's the one the Bible's all about. He's the one in the end who's the answer to all their needs. It's not you or the, maybe the bigger church or Anglicare. Or it's, they need Jesus. Those other things are helpful. <laughs> all right? Keep talking Jesus up. Like the slave girl with Naaman. All right? Come meet my God. He's got all that you need. That's what Philip did. Let me introduce you to Jesus. He's got all the answers that you need. Father, thank you for this great moment when two men had a conversation and one came to Christ. We thank you that you work like that. We worked like that in our lives and you worked like that all over the place. Help us to be confident that you go before us and we pray that we will be hungry for your heart for the lost, that we'll be like Philip, ready to speak, looking for opportunities, remarking on interesting things and we pray that you'll give us the joy of leading many others to Christ. Amen.